Hi everyone, this is a brand new season of the Practical Protection Podcast. In this first episode, I have a new guest with me, Catherine Morgan. Hi Catherine. Hi Catherine. <laughs> Catherine with a K, I'm Catherine with a C. I, yes. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I, do you ever have any of that issue that people with, that Catherine have that it's always no one ever gets it right oh I always just say it's Catherine with a C I N E at the end and it's just uh. it just kind of happens now like it's one of the reasons actually we called our children George and Thomas because I was like no one is ever going to have to ask yeah. them how do you spell that <laughs> absolutely no, I completely agree I did the same with my middle child's Alexander but I did have someone ask me how to spell Alexander and I thought I was really surprised that that wasn't like a commonly known name, but I did um, I did an online Tai Chi class the other day and there was three Catherines there and we all had the same spelling and I think my spelling is quite an unusual version. Yeah. I was just like, I was kind of like, how dare they? That's my spelling. Yeah. That's <laughs> Well, I didn't realise when I called my boys George and Thomas, it wasn't until my second son was born and he was about a week old. I abbreviated it and said, uh, my two boys, George and Thomas, G and T. And I was like, oh, no, they're going to think I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, you see, I just think that's perfect. Subtle and perfect. But right. I, can't get, I, I can't get a tattoo now, can I, of my boys' names? Because they'll literally think I'm an alcoholic. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> well, you never know. I'm sure we'll be able to figure out something. But anyway, so to everybody, we have a jam-packed full episode for you. And I'm going to be talking about Catherine's work. And it's all about, if I get it right, it's all about encouraging people to engage with their beliefs and emotions when it comes to their finances. And we're also going to talk about your uh, recent, um, you were in hospital um, recently, well, a year or so ago, weren't you? And there was a bit of a claim on private medical insurance. And as always, I'm going to have some case study examples to chat through as well. So how are you doing, Catherine? How, how's life treating you in the pandemic and lockdown? Yeah, good. It's um, getting a, li a little bit like Groundhog Day at the moment, um, but we're good. Like I I'm a massive believer in just being very grateful for everything that we have. And I've actually really enjoyed having my children at home. I, I didn't think I'd ever say that. My, my, <laughs> my boys are, um, are six and nine. So um, yeah, the homeschooling situation has been interesting, but I think... I've, I've never, I always go into the day with no expectations of what my kids are going to do, what mood they're going to be in. Um, yeah. and remembering actually that they're in their emotional capacity, their, their psychological and mental health, I think is probably more important than anything else. So, you know, if they can get through some spellings, maths and a bit of reading each day, then we're on to a winner. Yeah, I think that's a really, really positive way of looking at it. So I've, I've got three boys, eight, almost six and almost three. And it's, it's it's difficult but I keep doing that thing as well where I'll just go yes it's difficult but I'm also really grateful because when am I ever going to get kind of solid three months yeah. with them and it's tricky at times <laughs> it's you know tired and my head is about to explode with all the different things that we're meant to be doing um but it's it you know we're safe we're comfortable and we're all together so I'm just you know I'm really grateful that we're in that situation I, I certainly can't complain at the end of the last season, I don't know if you're aware, but we have what I keep referring to as our famous truth or lie feature of the podcast, where at the end, somebody says, obviously, some truth and some lies. And we had Rosalie Hayes from the National AIDS Trust and Andrew Wibley was involved at that point. So I had said that my first thing post lockdown was to go for spa. Andrew said he was going to go ice skating and Rosalie was going to go to her favorite pub. So I'm just wondering, who do you think was telling a little porcupine? oh so it was the pub the spa what was the middle and one skate ice skating probably the ice skating 
you are right. I'd say he's not here anymore. Andrew is terrible at lying. He's so terrible. <laughs> As I say, I don't know if you know him at all, but he's about a million foot tall. So the thought of him on ice skates <laughs> is just the most hilarious thing that you could possibly envision. I don't think that would work well for anybody involved on the ice rink. <laughs> well, I was kind of thinking I can see that, you know, hot weather, ice could be quite nice. Um, but uh, I think definitely the spa and the pub would top those two for me. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I am absolutely ready for a spa. I just can't wait. I can't think of anything nicer at the moment, to be honest. Um, so going on to what you're here for, I think it's quite fair to say that we are both quite out there when it comes to social media. We're all over the social media, different um, sorry platforms and everything. And I, you know, we've pretty much met through Twitter as well, which is um, which is quite nice. And to, to now be able to meet each other, obviously in this uh, sorry podcast as well. And I know you do your own podcast. You're a financial coach and planner, and you're also involved in the Institute for Financial Wellbeing. Um, I'm possibly missing out some things there. It seems like you're doing just so much stuff, which is incredible. Can you just tell us a bit more about them all? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll give you a very whistle-stop tour. So I've been I've been a financial I've been in financial services since day dot really since I was 18. Um, I moved into financial coaching almost four years ago now. And uh, I became involved with the formation of the Initiative for Financial Wellbeing, the IFW, um, at the latter part of 2019 with Chris Buds. And what drew me to that was actually the, the IFW's principle is about how to help um, advisors and planners and financial experts to help their clients to be not just wealthier, but happier. And the whole concept of happiness is, you know, is so what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's, there's no right answer. Like what, what is yeah. happy for somebody is, ha- you know, is happiness in a different way to somebody else. And so it's been really interesting actually to, to form this initiative to, to have these really interesting conversations about what research tools can we use to help people to focus more on happiness rather than products. Yeah. And um, that's a big part. I believe in the work I do as a financial coach because a financial coach's role is about exploring the emotional connection that people have with money. Um, And often, even when we're talking about things like insurances, it can be a very emotive subject for people for many different reasons. But actually, we attach a meaning to money. And depending on what that meaning is that we attach to money depends on how we feel then about talking about money. So some of your listeners will hear that in, you know, when when we're going through application forms with clients or... Um, we're having conversations about critical illnesses and protecting their income and things like that. Some people are very, very open to talk about those things and some people are not. And what's interesting for me is, is what meaning are they attaching to that? Is it because they've had some experiences? Is it because of some of the messages they've had growing up around money? All yeah. of those things have a, an impact on how we feel about money because money in itself is just, you know, a physical neutral thing. It's just, yeah, just money, but it's what we attach to that to the meaning of money that makes a difference. I think that's really important. It's that sort of just sort of tricks something in my mind as well. So obviously you were saying about how you grow up and different things. So select so from my parents, um, my parents are incredibly guarded about their money and like their finances and things. And I managed to get them to speak to a financial advisor at some point. So obviously I do protection insurance. I don't do the full financial advice because my dad's not particularly well. He's got Parkinson's disease. And at some point, we'll probably need to think of a care home and different things like that. And I was trying to get him to speak to, to financial advisor and everything. 
and the, just the walls were up they just you know they just mm. couldn't and it was to them there's just such a huge emotion you know I know for a fact that my mum would just love she, she well she I've just managed to get us to do online banking which is incredible because we also live in a town now that has no banks. The closest bank we have to travel is um, we have to drive 20, mi- uh, 20 minutes to get to the closest town. And I managed to get to do that, which was brilliant. But she's, you know, they're just so guarded and they're so worried about, right, well, if the bank has this much, then it, am I going to be okay? Because can I trust the bank? You know, and there's just so much. But then for myself, I have a financial advisor, you know, they're looking after my pensions for me and my investments um, and a number of different things. So it's it's strange how you are like you say you can grow up in certain things how but how that could maybe you could follow that but then how it may also encourage you to be slightly different potentially yeah I think um generationally there's a big difference as well between um and you mentioned the word trust in there trust is a big thing so if, if there's no trust around money then that can lead to certain behaviors and often the behavior that's linked to lack of trust is either kind of the this concept of sort of burying your head in the sand or being quite carefree and really just not wanting to even talk about it um but i think generation generationally as well we're much more open to talking about money now than we were 50 years ago and you think about your parents relationship with money is often governed by their parents relationship with money and you, yeah. you're talking now about the generation of you know, potentially pre-war and even post-war when there was a lot of um kind of con not, not conflict necessarily but a, a lot of societal changes and impacts so you know pre-war for example it was it was all scarcity it was rationing it was lack of so that can have an impact obviously on the beliefs that somebody may have about money and that maybe if they were to talk about money then that would be uncomfortable and they would be judged um, and yeah. and you go right back to even british history you know, aristocracy all around the rich and the poor and land and title. If you didn't have land or title, you weren't considered to be of anything substantial in in society. Mm. And so it's really interesting to think about even just from a cultural perspective. And this will be very different to people who are living in Ireland or Scotland. You know, the the culture of that um, country can, can be deeply rooted then in our unconscious belief system because it's then carried through the generations. So it's a generational pattern. And that's why I'm a massive believer in actually talking more openly and honestly about money because then we can actually explore some of our unconscious beliefs that sit in our unconscious minds that we may not even be aware of that can have a huge impact on how we feel and how we make decisions around money. I think that's really, really interesting because at, um, at university I did some work about normative behaviour and metanorms and different things like that. And I think that it, it, it is, it's a really fascinating thing when you go beyond what is sort of like that kind of first thing that you see and you start to delve deeper into how people's minds are working and how that social construct is sort of like making the way that, that they're making their decisions. Mm. Um, and you also have your podcast as well, don't you? Yes, In Her Financial Shoes. Yeah, so I do a weekly podcast. We've just, In fact, we've just gone to, to two episodes a week now, um, where possible. Wow. <laughs> um, I was going to say, with home homeschooling and working and everything as well, that's pretty, that's good going on you. <laughs> yeah, I just, it, it's, um, I think it's one of those things that I, I could just sit and interview people all day long. I just think it's fascinating to hear people's stories. Um, but yeah, we've been running for about 15, 16 months now. Um, so yeah, yeah, really, really enjoying it. Oh, fantastic. I know that I saw recently as well on Twitter, going back to the emotional connection with money and different things, that you've been promoting the use of um, it's a specific sort of like positive psychology model called PERMA yeah. to help people focus on things. And I think that at the moment, especially in lockdown, 
especially it seems to be in our community, at least where we are locally, that everybody just seems to have really focused upon, you know, that community mindset, you know, more and more people are helping the local butchers, the local fishermen, the local fruits and veg people, the local farms. And I think that seems to be something that I, I hope will be carrying on for, for more time. So what is, the, what is this PERMA model that you were sort of chatting about? Yeah, so I'm currently studying financial psychology and I'm in a US mastermind program and um, every month we kind of take a topic and we talk about it. Um, and I interviewed a guest who is a positive psychologist and um, on that particular interview we were talking about the PERMA model. So one of the things I'm a huge advocate for is about how our mental wealth um, our mental health, and, well, in fact, that's quite a good word, actually, mental wealth, yeah. but mental health, really? <laughs> our, you know, our self-worth is as important, if not more, than our net worth. And actually, a lot of people focus on the practical steps around money um, because we're not taught at school and we don't necessarily understand how to make um, financial decisions. Or, you know, in, for example, if I wanted to start investing, how do I start investing? It's the practical steps. But actually, more than anything, it's working on our... Um, you know, our unconscious belief systems, our, our, our behaviors, our habits, our thoughts, because that's essentially what drives the decisions that we make. Um, so the, the PERMA model is all around positive psychology. And um, I've got to remember what the PERMA stands for now, but the P stands for um, positive emotion. The E is around engagement. The R is relationships. The M is meaning. And the A is accomplishment. So it's, it's a model that you can help people to think about their financial well-being so more holistically by thinking about um, all, all of those aspects within their life. I think that's sort of like nicely sort of like translates to sort of the next stage of what we're going to be chatting about because I'm, you know, anybody who knows me knows I'm a huge advocate for um, positive case studies when it comes to insurance and insurance claims and things like that. I'm, I'm a big believer that statistics are good, but... I don't think that people, you know, if people are emotionally not sure about going for insurance and trusting insurers, I don't think to me that statistics are going to, are, are enough to tackle that kind of uncertainty. So as I often say, you know, if someone says, oh, well, it's, it, it pays out 98% of claims, you know, this insurer, and they've paid out this many million or billion potentially, then, you know, even so, I initially think, and it's just, it's just me, I think the way I've been brought up, I've been brought up by police officers, so I'm suspicious of anything. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately, I'm just like, what about the 2%? You know, tell me about that 2%. Why didn't they pay? And, you know, I know some insurers are making some big steps now to sort of like be able to be much more open about where those 2% haven't paid because there's obviously often, most of the times there's a very legitimate reason why it hasn't paid. But for people who are, as you say, emotionally maybe not connecting with the need for insurance and and that ability to trust people to do right by their family if something was to happen to them or to look after them if they're ill I do think that this kind of thing like the like the perma model could be quite a useful model to kind of sort of like look at when people are trying to insurers are trying to engage with their clients yeah I think what's interesting for me about what you said is that if people are driven by statistics they're always that's the logical side of their brain but actually we make 90% of our decisions from the emotional part of our brain not the rational part of our brain um, and, and actually I did a really interesting um, post out on LinkedIn this week and it was a picture of a uh, well it was a picture and you your it, it was the question above it was what do you see first the monkey or the tiger 
and um go and have a look at that it's really interesting but it's about stop myself going now sort of like on the side (laughs) trying to do it (laughs) but it was it was what was interesting about it is that um loads of people are oh the monkey i saw the monkey straight away which is more the right hand side of our brain and uh, a lot of people like no tiger which is the the logical side of our brain so and some people are i just cannot see the tiger where is the tiger and people are going it's 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 here on the picture top left on the picture and people i can't see it i can't see it and so what was interesting about that is that we, 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 all have a, we all have the same capacity in our brains, but the way that we use it is different. So we, we have a more of a bias, maybe with either the right side or the left-hand side of our brain. Yeah. And, and people often talk about it that it's a male-female thing, but it's, it's not necessarily a gender thing. Although there is a lot of research to show that men are more logical with their brains so they use more of the logical side of their brain than they are uh, for women more creative yeah. and more emotional but that's not always the case because a lot of men i know are very highly emotional so that's not yeah. always the case but for me when we talk about statistics that's the logical side of the brain um when actually in actual fact if you want to engage into more conversations with clients about protection we need to be thinking about how do we do that more emotionally because if they're not log- if they're not using the logical part of their brain and looking at facts and figures and spreadsheets and things doesn't turn them on, then you're never going to turn them on to that conversation by using statistics. It's about understanding the importance of, of protecting their family legacies. Why is it so important? What, what is it that's important to them about having that protection? And understanding their stories around money, I think, is a really good opportunity to explore that with clients. Uh, you know, and what I would call like a, dis- a, a storytelling discovery meeting where you really want to get underneath the bonnet of what has maybe happened to them. Have they had any experience of being poorly? Have they had poorly family members? Um, because sometimes it can just be one experience that they've had that they'll be making decisions from because that will trigger yeah. them to believe something. And that belief that they hold about insurances may not even be true it just might be that somebody said to them once once upon a time oh don't take insurances out they never pay out yeah and that then that belief goes into their subconscious belief system and they believe that that's true and the brain will then look for evidence to support that belief so they'll be the people that will look at the two percents and yeah. because they're looking for evidence to support that belief it's one of the human biases so i think what we can do better in the financial services profession is to think about how we can use more um questions around the emotions you know, that's going to trigger the emotional side of the brain rather than just the logical side of the brain yeah it kind of sounds like there needs to be with the engagement tactics that there needs to be at least two versions of it there needs to be the bit that's directed logically and the bit that's directed to the emotional people as well so sort of not just to say like this is a blanket approach but just to be as always reactive to what people need and what they are wanting so when it came to so we talked about the case studies and different things like that and people's experiences you were saying to me that you were obviously in hospital i believe last year was it with sepsis is that correct yeah, last January, um, I had kind of like flu type symptoms that tend very nasty very quickly. And um, for a whole array of reasons, which I won't necessarily go into. Um, but I ended up being sent home from hospital when I shouldn't have done. I ended up with sepsis. Oh, no. And then I ended up with an abscess in my pelvis, nine <sighs> centimeter abscess in my pelvis. So I wow, spent that's a good size. <laughs> 
yeah. So you're only a little slight thing as well, aren't you? So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they thought it was my appendix originally, and it turned out to be an abscess. So um, and then they were going to operate, and then they decided they weren't going to operate. So it was a bit oh, of a, wow. a bit of a, an experience. But yeah, I ended up uh, spending a week uh, on a side ward because the hospital was so busy. Uh, January time apparently is the second most popular time of the year to have a baby. So I was supposed to be on the Gyne- gynecological ward right, okay. my pelvis and they were full up with people having babies so I was stuck on a side ward for a week <laughs> how very inconsiderate of them I know <laughs> <laughs> you did have was it an experience with claiming on your private medical insurance at that point did that make it all go was it then that you had the private medical claim or was that was that a different instance yeah I, I've made a lot of claims on my private medical <laughs> insurance <laughs> I'm with you there all right yeah <laughs> mainly musculoskeletal and um, um, after effects of childbirth um, mm. stuff. So, uh, and because of my pelvis, actually. So, um, I, I didn't actually even remember. Obviously, because I was in in the hospital at the time, I was under NHS treatment. I actually yeah. um, was discharged, or I it was almost like voluntary discharge because they were so busy they couldn't even get me in for an MRI scan. So I said, look, discharge me, and I'll go privately. So I did that. I was discharged on the Friday. That weekend, I made some phone calls and I managed to get a private scan booked in for the Monday. Oh, brilliant. And, That's really uh, fast. That's yeah, it was really quick. And it was funny because the doctor who was the private uh, consultant was the same doctor as the NHS <laughs> consultant. It was yeah. just a, you know, a, a kind of fast track way of seeing her. And funnily yeah. enough, the day I was discharged on the Friday because they couldn't fit me in for the scan and I just didn't want to just sit in hospital. I wanted to be at home with my family. They actually rang me on the Saturday morning and said, oh, we're ready. We're ready to bring you down for your scan now. And I was thinking, well, I'm not in hospital anymore. And they said, oh, 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 we'll have to put you back to the start of the waiting list. And I was like, oh, so in the end, I went private, had the scan on the Monday. And um, and then I kind of thought not only did I use my private insurance for that, um, but also I because I was in hospital for seven days, I had like a bit of a payout. I think I had yeah. 700 pounds or something as a payout for inpatient um treatment or time so yeah so that was that was pretty cool it means I didn't have to kind of dip into any of my savings um and but more importantly it was the private referral that was like I just think I've I've had so many occasions where I've had to use private consultants to fast track the NHS and I I also believe that because I'm able to do that that I should do that because then that would free up that space for somebody else that maybe can't afford to have um, private medical insurance so I feel almost like I should do that so that it frees up that time for the NHS that's that's brilliant I mean I have private medical myself but I've done a, a few claims on it and uh, and it's it is incredible actually just how quickly you can be seen and at your own pretty much at your own time and convenience as well and it's it's certainly something that um, I think there's probably going to be more <sighs> I think people are seeing, especially with like value-added benefits, when you get them with some insurances where you're getting the private GP appointments and the sort of remote access and people, obviously that's not private medical insurance, but that kind of facility to kind of have on-demand medical experts, you know, it's, I think that's bringing it even more to the forefront of people. So I thinking, actually, this is, this is quite nice. If I can potentially have that, it's, it's a nice thing to have. But I know we were chatting as well that there was, um, there's been a few other things. So obviously this um, podcast is 
pretty much focused upon people who've had medical conditions and different things and um and their sort of like potential potentially any difficulties they've had in getting insurance or even potentially their feelings their like we've been saying their emotions going for insurance i know there's been a few things in your past would you like to share pe- with people what um what you'd like to share yeah i mean i've i've had um nothing major really I mean, i've never um i've never broken any bones touch wood you know i've never had any and what I would call major issue, you know, I've never had cancer, touch wood or anything like that. But I have had what I would probably consider to be quite common um, medical conditions. And and having been a financial advisor for 20 years, I've seen all these, you know, over and over again. And, and, they, and a lot of the conditions I've had, people do think, oh, well, I couldn't possibly have insurance because of these conditions. So I, I had eating disorders in my teenage years. Um, so that was probably one of my biggest challenges in when I did my initial critical illness insurance, actually when I was in my twenties, I remember having to disclose periods of depression and, um, and issues I had around my eating. And, and then I've also had uh, PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder twice in my life. And um, alongside that kind of anxiety related kind of conditions um, I've never been on any medication for them. I've always sought um, alternative therapies and things to support yeah. me through those periods. Um, but I remember the last time I did some insurance was when I did my relevant life cover, actually, when I set up my limited company a few years ago. And I remember having to go through an application form at the time and disclose anything I'd had in the last five years. And I had to disclose my PTSD diagnosis, which was after my son um, had meningitis when he was five weeks old. And when I disclosed it, I remember them asking me questions about like, have you had any time off work? And I was thinking, no, no time off work. Are you on any medication? No. Um, But because I had the diagnosis, they actually wanted to increase my premiums. And I remember having a conversation with the underwriter saying, well, I didn't have any time off work. I I wasn't, didn't have any medication. I had some um, counseling and, um, and things like that uh, and some therapy. Um, And actually when I gave them more specific information, they then decided that they would just accept my policy under standard terms. But it was interesting that initially they wanted to go straight to, um, you know, putting special conditions attached to it. And if that's, if that, think, is that my kids in the background? Was that, was that your, yeah, it was. It's my apologies if you can hear little ones, like the, the, the beauty of having kids at home during lockdown. So yes, they're, they're obviously having some fun in the morning. It's all right. I'm just taking it as a win that it wasn't my children for once. <laughs> Um, so I think that's probably, you know, what you've experienced is probably what a lot of people would experience to a certain extent. And then probably a lot of people, you know, there's this like the first half of it where you're saying, well, I went for insurance and because I have post-traumatic stress disorder, they're wanting to double my premiums. And then I think that's probably a very common experience that a lot of people, you know, have. But then that next bit where you've said, well, actually, I went to the underwriter and just said, in a sense, went, hang on a minute. No, (laughs) don't do that. And then they agreed with you. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily get that second stage. And obviously, with what we do as as Cure, we are there to to do all of that kind of things. But I think, you know, for for the general person who's not a financial advisor, who's not somebody who knows what to do, who's not somebody who's going to get to speak to an underwriter and explain things more they're going to hit just stop at that your premiums are doubled yeah I think it's about um just challenging things sometimes I mean sometimes the underwriters are 100% uh correct and 
they're obviously they're basing the decision on the information they have available to them so i I always think if um the more information you have the better position the underwriter then is to make that decision um but i've had several occasions multiple occasions over the years where we have made uh challenges on underwriting decisions and and probably challenge is the wrong word because it's not like the underwriter is a bad person it's like we often had this conversation about compliance it's not that the underwriters are wrong it's just that they they have they're making a decision based on the information they have available to them so the more information that people can put on their application forms and give to their advisors just makes that job much much easier absolutely and i think as well that's being quite open that probably from a statistics point of view people who have had PTSD or sort of like experiencing that are um are probably at a higher risk of potentially making a claim on some well their family making a claim on something like the life insurance but that's not always the case I know I had a case with somebody where I was applying for them for insurance and they had post-traumatic stress disorder and the insurer that I was like chatting to initially didn't particularly like the fact that they weren't on medication and that they were self-controlling it and doing alternative things, really active fit lifestyle to try and get through it all. And they actually preferred, would have preferred it if they had been somebody who was potentially medicated, who was seeing the doctor regularly, just so there was that constant, uh, sort of like a consistent kind of official medical view from a medical professional as to how their mind was and um, I can kind you know I can appreciate why that that's there but then also you hit somebody like in your instance where you start to think well actually you know a lot of the time we're constantly saying to people you don't need to have you don't necessarily need to have antidepressants in some situations you don't need to do this you know if you go to alternative therapies that can help but I think what we were saying before about the logical brain and the emotional brain, I think you can't just put everyone under one banner. You know, there's some people who will need antidepressants and which more of a, maybe more of an inter intervention for medical professionals. And there's people like yourself who are able in, in your situation, in your specific circumstances to effectively monitor that you know condition and be able to, to live a very full life. Yeah. So for me, I mean, I think I could probably talk about this for a good number of hours. I feel quite passionate about this actually, that um, in, 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 in a lot of situations, um, I believe that medication just masks symptoms and, and, or it can provide uh, immediate support for someone who's going through something very traumatic. And so that, so it's very needed in lots of situations, but for me, the reason I had PTSD was because I was triggered by my son crying. So every time he cried, it took me back to a moment in hospital when he was being jabbed with needles and cannulas, um, being treated for meningitis. So for me, if I was put on, on tablets, whilst it may have helped me at that time, short term, it was never going to be the solution because it wasn't actually um, helping me to remove that trauma, psychological yeah. trauma. Um, and that's why I believe that going through therapies or um, counseling or whatever, it, that, that for me was about exploring how I could change the meaning that I attached to that situation yeah. rather than actually just masking the symptoms with tablets. So, but I'm not saying that tablets are necessarily wrong. I just think that from a long term perspective, for me, it would make much more sense that if someone was receiving ongoing support for trauma, then we know that that's going to be um, 
a much greater way of helping pers- that person through that trauma. Yeah, I think that it's, a, a, it's definitely a good thing to be passionate about. And the thing is, is that it's worked for you and it's your ability to, to work through that situation. And if it works for you, then that's that's absolutely fantastic. So for people who aren't aware, if someone has post-traumatic stress disorder, with most um, insurance applications, you're going to be asked things about seeing psychiatrists, community health teams, um, inpatient treatments, suicidal thoughts, suicidal attempts. Did you feel okay sort of like being faced with those questions? Joe, as, you, as you've asked me that, I'd completely forgotten that when I was applying for the insurance, I was working for an IFA practice that was local to me. And, you know, I, I obviously did my own application really. But I remember having to have a phone call with a, a, a nurse, I think it was, like on, on a telephone underwriting. Um, and I remember going into the office and closing the door and thinking, I don't want anyone to hear this. So, yeah. so, and actually I'd forgotten about that. So I think whether you're a financial advisor yourself or not, it, it is hard. It's hard to have those conversations you, and you don't necessarily want people to hear about them. I didn't necessarily want people to ask me questions and, but because of, of fear of judgment and fear of shame and what would people say about me? What will people think about me? So I think it's a really interesting one, actually, Catherine. I think that in an ideal world, it would be great if the client could have somewhere confidentially that they can have those conversations. And sometimes I remember when I was advising clients is to actually, if they were doing like a telephone interview or or a telephone application where possible, which I know is a much more um, available now than it was even five years ago, that I would leave the room and just say, I'm just going to go make a cup of tea. I'm just going to leave you to have this conversation and then leave the room because as an advisor, you, you almost become like a, you almost like I used to jokingly say, like, I feel like I'm a doctor asking you all these questions. Yeah. Um, so I think as much as we can support that kind of confidential environment as a doctor would, that would be really important for me because whether you're an expert in financial services or not, we all have emotions attached to experiences and sometimes people aren't willing to share that. And I actually wonder whether that could be a reason why consumers are less comfortable to reach out to financial advisors to make applications for insurances maybe that's why they do do online applications and things because they don't want to have those conversations there is meant to be a thing I can't remember where the study was um, but there was a study that had said that a lot of people with mental health conditions prefer to do online applications because of the fear of the stigma and I think in some ways in in Cura I'm kind of in a little bubble because I specifically do a lot of help with people who do have mental health conditions and I speak to them and I'll I'll chat through the questions that I'll be asking people and there are times I have to go more in depth than what the insurance application will ask because I know I need that information but we essentially kind of do a little bit of a tele-interview so people come to us and chat to us and we're already in that kind of you know we're that buffer for the the questions in a sense so we're already going through all the medical information they come to us knowing that they're going to go through that medical information they're coming to us specifically to tell us their medical information and to Mm. use um, our knowledge there but for probably a lot of financial advisors as you say you know there could be that situation where they're maybe not prepared for all the medical information they're suddenly going to hear. The client may not have felt that they would suddenly be faced with questions that could potentially um, be about medical histories that they maybe don't want to be talking about because to them, they may be thinking, well, this is finance. This isn't anything to do with my, you know, it's, it's a lot of different, there's so many different like intricacies to it, isn't it? I think the fact though, that you are very uh, open and vulnerable and passionate about sharing your like mental health stories, for example, means that, you know, if you're going to then attract people to come and make an application with you, 
it, hopefully they've checked out your website, they may have listened to your podcast, they've, you know, they've seen some of your videos, your social media content. That I think is huge because the more vulnerable we can be about our own stories, the more that helps them to think like, oh, well, I'm not the only one to feel like this. Um, because it's, you know, this, what's really interesting for me is that our profession doesn't dictate who we are just because we're yeah. financial you know, advisors or, or underwriters or whatever we are in financial services. We're still human. We still make bad money decisions. We still make yeah. um, you know, decisions around money. We still hold money shame. We still have secrets around money. Um, it's not just because we are in financial services doesn't mean that we are a different person. It's not who we are. So, so I think the more vulnerable we can become with sharing more about our money stories, um, it's one of the things I did in the very early days of sharing my money story about being in 30, 30 grand's worth of debt in my 20s as a financial advisor. Um, yeah. um, and it doesn't make me a bad person. It's just that was just my experience. So I think what you're doing by having these conversations is so good because it, it just explores and opens out and shares that vulnerability to people that, you know, oh, I, it isn't just me that's had this mental health yeah. condition or it, it just it just makes that a lot easier to talk about I think so I think uh, what you were saying as well before just going back to that it's that kind of normative behavior again isn't it? it's that metanorm of kind of insurance because insurance I think is just automatically we're bundled in with finance which means we're automatically kind of in people's mind's eyes kind of banks you know and it's just that image isn't it of big gray buildings in London men in suits and it's all hard and fast. It's just money, money, money. There's just, there's no emotion. Everybody's just, that's it. You know, yeah. everybody's just got glum faces and that's it. And, and being in this world, that isn't you know, the case at all. Um, but I think we are still, still battling that kind of, you know, sort of like mindset. And I think, you know, I don't know how we sort of like fully tackle that, but I think there's quite a lot of us that are obviously doing a lot of things to really humanize the process. And I think especially in financial advice, you can see there's like, there's yourself, there's um, quite a few others who are just really, like you said, Chris Budd, there's quite a lot of other people as well that are just trying their hardest, as I say, to, to humanize our industry, which is, I, th I think is really key to, as you say, do that emotional engagement, which is was it 90% of people work on the emotional side of things? Yeah, so, so the statistics are that, um, I mean, Freud talked about 100% of our decisions are made from our subconscious belief system, our unconscious beliefs. Um, but modern day psychologists believe that around 90% of the decisions that we make every single day come from our unconscious beliefs. Um, and, and most of those decisions come from the emotional part of our, of our brain. We're triggered by how we feel about something, you know, whether you decide to wake up tomorrow morning and start that diet or put your gym shoes on and go for a run because you're, you've been telling yourself over and over, perhaps during lockdown, you're going to do more exercise. But yeah. the, the actual doing part of it, the behavioral part of it is driven by how we feel. So if we're not motivated to do something, we won't do it. Um, so the motivation's got to be there. The habits, the beliefs, the thoughts have to be there. The emotion has to be there. The emotional connection has to be there. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to give some examples now for people as to what kind of questions that they would be faced um, if they go for insurance and they've had post-traumatic stress disorder. If there's anything that you think of that I've missed from your experience of going through that, then please do let me know. So the, the main things people are going to want to know are things like uh, the insurer is going to know is, you know, when you were diagnosed, um, if you can be open sometimes to discussing um, the cause of the PTSD, that can sometimes help. So again, it kind of, it, it, 
it's very hard I think for people to do that sometimes but I think sometimes that allows the underwriters to understand the human and the emotional side of what's happened to somebody and why the reaction has been the way that it has uh, medications treatments um, any hospitalization um, seeing a psychiatrist at all the big ones are the things like the suicidal thoughts the self-harm and the suicide attempts and mainly as well they're looking for things like the ongoing symptoms so if somebody's had PTSD and it's something they've recovered from then a lot of the time you know there's a big difference from you know obviously recovering from it a week ago to recovering to it you know sort of like a year or so um but that is often sort of like in a sense the better situation if it is something you're no longer experiencing but even if somebody is still experiencing it that doesn't mean that they can't get the insurance um depending upon the time frames they may be like you to be able to get standard insurance and um, sometimes and well sometimes i said to more often is the case is that somebody would experience a premium increase and um, we're actually one of um, three brokers in the UK that have been given uh, specific um, permission to uh, to advise on a life insurance policy within the UK for people with mental health conditions. Now, it's certainly not necessarily the first route that you would potentially go down. It's just one of the options that are there. And the reason I say that is because um, it comes with a permanent self-harm and suicide exclusion with most life insurances that lack that. that kind of a suicide exclusion would last maybe the first 12 months of a life insurance policy. Most, a lot of people don't realize that. Um, and a lot of people I speak to with mental health, if this you know, specific policy is the one that is right for them, they're really surprised that life insurance ever covers suicide or yeah. self-harm. You know, it, it really shocks people They go, well, why on earth do they cover that? It's life insurance. In, and I'll say, but that is, that is the case. And that's why they've maybe experienced issues and had declines when they've applied for cover before. Um, so that is something that can be available for people as well as some specialist ones. And uh, I'll just quickly off the top of my head as well, just um, with you mentioned the eating disorders. So similarly with the eating disorders, what they would want to know is when you were diagnosed, any medications and treatments you've had, when the last symptoms were, and um, what they would generally want to know as well is probably what your, the person's lowest weight has ever been. Uh, what their current weight is and how long that's been stable you know how long they've been in probably what's uh i'm going to do like little bunny ear you know sort of quote things to say you know the normal bmi range uh, but even if somebody is slightly lower or slightly above that sort of the standard bmi that that doesn't mean that someone can't get cover it's just really important to research and with the sepsis <laughs> just uh, remembering the different things you've told me um that would be the kind of thing that again assuming that you're fully recovered and there's been no complications or anything like that that most insurers are going to be absolutely fine about um and i've got some was there anything else that you wanted to add there in regards to the um to the applications that you went through or anything in your experiences yeah no the, I, I think that was um one of the questions i was asked by the nurse actually on that telephone call around the ptsd was about um what what whether it what it was linked to and so because it for me it was linked to this event where my son was poorly it was like a one-off event and because I was receiving treatment this is probably why actually they didn't offer any any kind of uh, exclusions or anything like that or increasing my pick premium because um it was just one event and so they could probably realize that it was because of that specific event that caused the PTSD so and but but actually sometimes Sometimes PTSD is triggered by something that people actually don't don't know. They don't necessarily know what's triggered them. 
And, and sometimes people can go into what they call PTG, which is post-traumatic growth. So post-traumatic stress disorder doesn't always mean that someone is anxious or depressed or anything like that. In fact, I was the complete opposite. I did get very anxious, but I actually almost used that to fuel me to grow. And, okay. I, and I, that's why I talk about it a lot, how it's made me grow as a person. So, um, so I think that's an interesting one as well, is if you're getting treatment, is to understand whether you're whether your body is responding through fight or flight and it's going into PTSD and then you're suffering things like depression or anxiety or whether actually you go into fight mode. And then that's often when people go into PTG, which is post-traumatic growth. Yeah. Um, but I do remember them being very specific about, so how long did you feel that for? And, um, yeah. you know, did you get to the stage where you did feel suicidal or anything like that? So yeah, a hundred percent what you just said there, Catherine. Yeah, I think that's really interesting about the PTG as well because I, I I'd never thought of I've not sorry come across that kind of term before, and I think that's really good because I'm I'm somebody who has anxiety and I must definitely go into flight mode. It's very rare that I get into the fight mode if I'm in my mm. kind of trigger situations. So that's really really interesting to to hear about that. Um, so I'm going to give a couple of case studies and then we'll chat about um this new financial training program that you've set up, and uh, you can tell everybody about that and where they can find you for your podcasts and anything else in regards to your financial coaching. So. I've got two case studies for everybody today. Um, the first case study uh, that we have is a 30-year-old man who requires some mortgage protection. He had anxiety and depression for many years, but he'd been symptom-free for about two years or so. And prior to 10 years ago, before speaking to us, he'd had a suicide attempt. And then he'd had another one about four years before speaking to us uh, around the time of being diagnosed with some um, PTSD. And he hadn't realized in a sense that he had PTSD and it built up and built and built up and it resulted in that event. And he's had some extended time off work just to try and come to terms with everything and process everything he'd been through. So uh, for this person, it's uh, it was a, the insurance policy that I mentioned before with the permanent self-harm and suicide exclusion. He was able to get decreasing life insurance of £175,000 over 30 years for just over £10 per month. So I think that's a really important one to show people that it doesn't have to cost the earth. You know, some people could come and go, right, well, actually, I've got this condition, you know, I've had potentially suicide attempts, want life insurance, they're, they're not going to cover me. And if they do, it's going to be crazy money. I mean, this person says just over £10 per month. The second case study I have was um, another middle-aged man. He had um, PTSD following um, being involved in some active military duty. And um, a few years prior to speaking to us, he had also um, taken some recreational drugs. But there'd been no self-harm, no suicide attempts, no psychiatrists. It'd been a few years since symptoms. So it was something he'd had, but it was something he'd over overcome. And he was currently in quite a high well-paid job and he wanted to put some family protection in place just for you know if him being the main breadwinner if something was to happen to him that his family would be taken care of for for a while so um he went for or we will be arranged for him to have a uh, one million five hundred thousand pounds worth of life insurance over 10 years and the premium came to 230 pounds per month with no exclusions now with that one there had been a premium increase um, it was a combination of the drugs and the PTSD. So it was because there was that little bit extra there as well. But it was that one of those things where, again, if somebody's faced with that kind of situation as a premium increase, like for this gentleman, we are due to go and speak to him soon to review it because when we're obviously a few more years away from when he's taken the drugs, everything becomes just that little bit easier to, to, to sort of like arrange. Um, so there are my case studies. So Catherine, please tell us about your financial training program that you've arranged. 
Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, if anybody's interested or listening to this and interested about exploring the emotional side of how we can help work with cl- working with clients, um, then I, I actually earlier or just before, as we were in lockdown, actually uh, released a brand new program into the market, which is uh, it's called the Financial Coaching Training Program, but it's really um, a, a 12-week deep dive into different exercises and tools that you can actually use with clients. Uh, we've got 27 people going through the first cohort at the moment, so we're kind of three wow. quarters of the way through at the moment, and um, we're running the second cohort in September. And because and, what what we're seeing in the market is a lot of advisors who are wanting to. Uh, to focus more on people, not products. And that's where the meaningful work comes in. Um, And some financial advisors are setting themselves up as financial coaches, either within their existing regulated businesses or separate businesses. Um, And that's what I I would love to help as many um, financial advisors or planners or mortgage advisors, protection specialists, to really understand how we can um, help clients to uncover their relationship to money, because really that's where the magic happens. If we can un- un- uncover their relationship with money and help them to reconnect some of the meaning around money and the purpose around money, um, then we layer it on top of that with all the practical stuff that we can give them help with in financial services. That's when the magic happens. So, um, so yes, we're opening up the, the second cohort in September 2020. Um, so if anybody's interested in finding out more about that, that's um, on the website, themoneypanel.co.uk. And you can just click on the tab that says financial coaching training program. That sounds brilliant. We're coming to the, as I say, famous Truth or Lie feature. And I will set it off and um, we'll reveal all next time. So my latest thing is to say that um, you have to decide if it's truth or lie, listeners, is that my latest lockdown project is attempting to learn origami. So I was once a film extra in a film called The Young Victoria. If that's true, that's far more interesting than my origami. (laughs) (laughs) Now that would be impressive. Origami looks way complicated. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for listening and thank you, Catherine, for joining me. It's been lovely to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm going to be back in two weeks with Roger Edwards, marketer extraordinaire. We're going to be chatting about how to make insurance more engaging, which is perfectly run on for what we've been doing today about emotional engagement. It's sort of like when to do outreach, what to do with it, and sorry, looking sorry not necessarily naming or shaming any kind of marketing techniques or anything but maybe sort of sorry saying what we think is good and then maybe looking at some things that we think are actually they're 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 no-nos let's try and avoid them as much as possible if you'd like a reminder of the next episode uh, when we're going to be chatting um say about marketing please do drop me a message on social media or visit the website www.practical-protection.co.uk again thank you very much for coming on Catherine. thanks Catherine.